pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that's uh, Adoniram Judson, handsome fellow, as you can tell. And I already moved my mouse. So I'm gonna have to. I don't know what that is actually. It is uh, a drawing, close up. So some bio info. He was born August 9th, 1788 in Malden, Massachusetts. So a northeastern boy. Um, he died April 12th, 1815. He died at sea while he was going home for treatment. He was very, very ill at that time, and they were trying to bring him home to, to get some treatment. That's apparently what they did back then. They really couldn't do much. Um, he was a missionary mostly, uh, almost exclusively, actually, in Burma. And there's not much you can do in Burma in the 1800s. And so if you were sick enough and they thought you were going to die, they put you on a ship and tried to get you home where they could actually treat you. Again, widely known as a missionary to Burma. He was an exceptionally smart child. He learned to read at age three. As the story goes, his dad went on a trip. His dad was a pastor. And when his dad came back as a gift, his mom had him read a chapter of the Bible at three years old uh, to his dad. He entered Brown University at 16 as a sophomore. He graduated three years later as the valedictorian in 1807. And uh, yeah, as mentioned, his dad was a pastor of the Third Congregational Church in Plymouth, Massachusetts. He was married not once, not twice, but three times. His first wife, Anne, had three children. Um, and they actually all perished between 1826 and 1827. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see in a little while that his wife, several months after they were married, um, went to Burma with him. And so that's where she got very ill. His second wife, Sarah, was the widow of another missionary, and they were married in 1834. He uh, translated the Bible into Burmese, which we'll see, and she sent him a note congratulating him for translating the Bible into Burmese. He wrote back and kind of thought to himself, well, she's the widow of another missionary. She's already got a heart for the Lord. I'm alone. She's alone. Hey. <laughs> why he not? went to, why not? He went to go visit her, and within a month of visiting her and meeting her, they were married. She had eight children, five of which would actually live beyond their childhood. So they did lose another three children, or he lost another three children. Another interesting fact about Sarah is that she translated the Pilgrim's Progress into Burmese. And she also died uh, trying to get home uh, as well, as she was very sick and she was trying to get home for treatment. And finally, his third wife, Emily, she had a, a pen name because she was a famous writer and author. Her name was Fanny Forrester, which sold more books than Emily, whatever her last name used to be. He met her while he was on the, in the States. He was home in the States his only time in 30 years. He was home in the States for his first 30 years. Then he came home. And he met a man on a train who was reading a book. And Judson said, who's that? And he said, well, it's this wonderful author, Fanny Forrester. You should read it. So he read the book. And he goes, oh, by the way, I actually know her. And she's coming over. Why don't you come over to our house for dinner tonight? So he ended up at their house for dinner. Found out she was a Christian. He asked her to actually write Sarah's memoirs, who was the second wife. And as she was writing the memoirs, he said, I have a better idea. Why don't you just become my wife? So they indeed got married as well. Again, less than a month after meeting her. So I don't know if any of you guys have 
dating and engagement stories that were that quick, but I guess in the 1800s they moved pretty fast. So. Did, the, did the first wife die, or the kids die, or they all died? They all died. Yeah, two kids and the wife. Yeah. Anne. He convinced her to return to Burma, which they did. They had one child. Uh, the second child, which we'll see, unfortunately died at birth as well after uh, Adoniram died. They spent, though, four happy years in Burma, and then Adoniram became ill and died on his voyage home as well to get treatment. His final words. Yes, Ronald. Uh, two quick things. Gary Sharon was born in Malden. And okay, thank you. Extreme trivia. I believe Adoniram, Adoniram is Hebrew for God is lifted up, or God is exalted. Adonai is, is the root. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Adonai. It's a cool name. Yeah. Huh. I didn't look at the uh, ontology of that. You might be Adonai. correct. His final words after 40 some odd years of ministering in Burma, translating the Bible into Burmese, doing a 600-page Burmese English dictionary. He said, I feel as though I'm almost only just beginning to be prepared for usefulness. It's just like, what? <coughs> You're way beyond being just beginning to be prepared for use, usefulness. And he was buried at sea uh, off the coast of Burma. So he died at sea and they buried him at sea as well. And that was kind of his request, that he wanted to be buried as close to Burma. So they knew that he didn't want to keep going on to uh, the States. He wanted to be buried close to uh, his land where he was spreading the gospel. So, so a couple key life themes. <clears throat> conversion. Hey, we had a conversion story this week. Yay. So while at college, while at Brown, you think this is something that happens just in 2020. It doesn't. He drifted into atheism and deism in the 1800s in college, and by the time he left, he had no Christian faith to speak of, mostly due to the bad influence of a friend named Jacob Eames. And he told his parents that he was no longer a Christian, and he said, I'm going to New York City, and I'm going to write for the theater. And that was his big plan. So, of course, broke his parents' heart, but God had other plans for Mr. Judson. So... <clears throat> I'll read a little bit here. So this is, again, uh, on his way to New York to his, fulfill his big secular dream now of writing for the theater. Piper writes, It didn't prove to be the life of his dreams. He attached himself to some strolling players and, as he said later, lived a reckless, vagabond life, finding lodgings where he could and bilking the landlord where he found opportunity. His disgust with what he found there was the beginning of several remarkable providences. He went to visit his uncle Ephraim in Sheffield, but found there instead was a pious young man who stunned him by being firm in his Christian convictions without being austere, austere and dictatorial. Strange that he should find this young man there instead of his uncle. The next night he stayed at a small village inn where he had never been before. The innkeeper apologized that his sleep might be interrupted because there was a man critically ill in the next room. How do you like that when you're checking into the Best Wine Street? Right? We got a room. Good news, we got a room. Bad news, there's somebody dying next door. Through the night, he heard comings and goings and low voices and groans and gasps. It bothered him to think that the man next to him may not be prepared to die. He wondered about himself 
and had terrible thoughts of his own dying. He felt foolish because good deists or good, even good atheists weren't supposed to have these struggles. Right? So he knew he wasn't fully resolved in his atheism and his deism. When he was leaving in the morning, he asked if the man next door was better. He is dead, said the innkeeper. Judson was struck with the finality of it all. On the way out, he said, do you know who he was? And he said, oh yeah, a, a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames, Whoa. which was his college roommate who had led him away from the faith. Judson could hardly move. He stayed there for hours pondering the death of his unbelieving friend. If Eames were right, then this was a meaningless event. But Judson could not believe it. The hell that should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend, and guide from the next bed, this could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. His conversion was not immediate, but now it was sure that God was on his trail, just like the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, and there was no escape. Months of struggle were to follow. So how is that for a conversion story? It's craziness, right? Soon thereafter, after he entered a seminary, Andover Seminary, and shortly thereafter was called into missions. At that point in the 1800s, the mission field was exploding. People were going to the east all over the place, and so it was a very, uh, very intense time of missions, and people going and coming from the mission field. So he got snapped right up into that and felt a burden for the east and headed in that direction. But any observations, implications, applications we can glean from his testimony, his conversion story. Anything jump out at you, Ronald? If you want to read something very fascinating, read Christopher Hitchens' last article for Vanity Fair. If you're not familiar with him, he's a, he was a brilliant yeah. but a, a stark atheist. He would debate some of the, the greatest minds um, and made, you know, made very salient arguments, but he wrote his final article on his deathbed that he was fully prepared to, to cease to exist and go into a void. Yeah. And he had no reservations about it. He was absolutely convinced that there was no afterlife. Yeah. And he stuck to his guns to the bitter end. And I often wonder when people are truly faced with dying, like, yeah. like how many foxhole conversions are there when people are like, that can't be yeah. true. Yeah, I think about that too. That people hold so resolutely to the fact that there's nothingness. Mm -hmm. Are they really going to go into eternity thinking that? His debates are yeah. still on YouTube. You they're can, you they're, they're yeah, very, I've very interesting. Him. He's a yeah. very smart guy. Watch yeah. the one with uh, Dinesh D'Souza. It's brilliant. I've seen that one. He defends the Christian faith wow. and, and Hitchin. And they're going at each other, and it's it's high-level stuff. But, yeah, to his deathbed, he swore there was nothing. Yeah. At least he put in pen and paper, you know. Hmm. So a theological question for the group. <laughs> was he uh, <clears throat> mistakenly a believer up until age 18 when he became Was he mistakenly a believer? Yeah, well, he said, I am no, he said to his parents, I am no longer a Christian. Okay. And then he adopted atheism. Mm -hmm. Or was he mistakenly Theism. an atheist and, and then later... In other words, was his early belief that he was a believer incorrect? And then he became a believer. I don't know. He asked the group, so yeah. not the pastor. So I would say only God knows the answer to that. And him. <laughs> well, the theological question: Can you lose your salvation? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say a, a practical way to look at it would be to look at the fruit, right? 
if you're planted in bad soil, there's not going to be fruit. But we see, we will see at the conversion that he bore fruit for the testimony of Christ. So I would mm -hmm. say he wasn't truly converted until that point. And I would say also that the only way to truly know if someone is saved or not is if they persevere in their faith to the end. Mm -hmm. There you go. So I was going to go in that direction because yeah. it's the long game. Right, it's the right. long game. So it's, it's God... People can go back and forth during their yeah. life or where they end up. Yeah. yeah, God will... I think I think this, among many things... This conversion story shows us that God will lose none of his own. Right. Like this guy didn't. Often include, I mean, including the thief on the cross. Yeah, there's no chance this guy was not going to be a Christian because, I mean, look at that story. And so he was one of God's and God was not going to let him go. Whether or, not, whether or not he believed, renounced, didn't believe, didn't ever get it, whatever. Yeah. And the knew. irony of all of it is that the atheist was used by God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God who redeems all things, right? Yeah. Hmm. Dramatic conversion story. And also, too, something that I have been thankful for, not just because my mom is watching, but because... Um, <laughs> Mostly because she's watching. Being born in a Christian home and yeah. being, being uh, having that privilege of being brought up within Christianity, right? He knew. I mean, it's kind of like my conversion story in a lot of ways. Like, when I hit that moment that... Judson did and had my crisis of belief or faith or existence or whatever, I knew where to go. I knew I had to turn around and go back to where I came from, right? And it sounds like that's a lot of what he did too. He, he was brought up in a Christian home. His dad was a pastor. So when he hit that crisis, it probably just sent him into overdrive to be like, yeah, I know it's true now. I know it's true. And turned around. So yeah, anything else? Okay, let's look at some of his missions work. So he is in, was in Burma, which is now present-day Myanmar, I guess is how you say that. Myanmar. So, Myanmar? Myanmar. Myanmar. Thank you, Bob. And so it is a little bit to the right of India there. Um, so again, kind of on the other side of the world. So it's a mostly Buddhist or almost exclusively Buddhist country, especially at that time. He first headed for India. He boarded a ship with his new wife, Anne, and the voyage to India took 114 days. No planes. 114 days. So he used that time wisely. He studied infant baptism because he was a, a congregationalist, right? And congregationalists at that time practiced infant baptism. And I guess he must have been having some stirrings within him and said, I'm going to wrestle this down and I'm going, to, I'm going to study this. So he studied it. And by the end of that journey of 114 days, he became convinced that that was not a biblical position. So he went onto the boat, a Congregationalist, Pado Baptist, but then got off the boat, a Baptist, creedal. Another conversion. Another conversion, <laughs> right? Another conversion. That actually was an enormous problem because they were sent out and supported by a Congregationalist Missions Board. <laughs> Oops. So he was there with his friend Luther Rice, who you may have heard of. Luther Rice, there's another school, Luther Rice Seminary, and a couple other things. He's another big name in Baptist missions. They all converted to being Baptists on that journey. And so they said, Luther, guess what? You're single. You go back home and tell everybody the bad news. <laughs> so they sent Luther on a boat back to headquarters and say, 
Good news is we landed in India. Bad news is we're all Baptists now. And they said, great, you're fired. Uh, go talk to the Baptists. So that's exactly what they did. Luther Rice then uh, ferociously started to try to generate support and acceptance and all of that for Baptist foreign missions. And he led to the establishment of one of the first Baptist foreign missions organizations because of that little episode. So for some reason, uh, Adoniram and his wife Anne were forced out of India and redirected. They had the idea then to just, since they were over there, let's just go, I don't have the map up anymore, but let's just go to Burma. People told them, do not go to Burma. Just like last week, whose name escapes me right now, whoever it was last week, they told you don't go to the island, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. Peyton. 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 Yeah, I've heard it said both ways. Yeah, kind of the similar, like, it's a jungle, there's mosquitoes, there's diseases, there's people, they don't speak the language, like, dumb idea, turn around, go home, get reassigned. And he said, no, we're going to Burma. Adoniram and Anne landed in Rangoon, Burma on July 13, 1813. He was married for 17 months. His wife was 23. He was 24. Six years after they got there, they baptized their first convert. Mm -hmm. Six years for one convert. And to make a long story short for this section, he served there 38 years until his death at 61. So, at one point he did, as I mentioned, go back to the United States and well into his journey, 30 years into that journey, he goes back to the United States. And what he didn't realize was that he had become famous while he was over there. Thousands of sermons had been preached about Adoniram Judson and what he had gone to do. Um, there have been literally thousands of babies that have been named Adoniram in his honor. He literally received a hero's welcome when he got home. This was after the death of his second wife, Sarah. His fame grew. He was invited to speak in church after church after church. But when he spoke in the churches, he preached the gospel. And people were disappointed by that. Wherever he went, people were disappointed because he preached the gospel. And finally, he asked why. And they said, we don't want to hear the gospel. We've heard the gospel already. We want to hear stories about Burma. We want to hear about the sicknesses and the danger and the tigers and the blah, blah, blah. Tell us all those stories. And he said, I've just told you the greatest story in the world. I'm not going to tell you any story. That's what they wanted. They wanted the the." The drama. They wanted all of those things. So that was a great disappointment to him. Also, he was discouraged by the division he saw in the U.S. church, especially in the early 1800s, which you could probably imagine was dealing with slavery. And how that affected missions. Because Northern Baptists refused to confirm slave owners as missionaries, right? And so, therefore, they split and formed a nice other denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention. Whoops. Yep. They left then the Northern Baptists kind of holding the bag because a lot of the Southern Baptists then split, said, fine, you don't like our slaves, we're leaving. They left. Now you have the Northern, weak, smaller and relatively weaker Baptist missions organizations trying to support people like who? Judson in Burma. So he felt it. 
And so he realized that all of this fighting and all of this kind of clamoring for resources and stuff was because of division in the church and especially about slavery. So he, he experienced, although he experienced fame in the United States, he had a lot of disappointment and uh, with the shallowness of the church, but also with the division of the church that he saw. So what do we think about that? What things are going through your, what things are resonating with you? Observations, implications. The churches were already seeker friendly in the, the year 1985. <laughs> churches were seeker friendly. They did not want to hear the gospel. They wanted Pe to hear people it. haven't changed much. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Nothing yeah. new under the sun, right? Yeah. A lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they didn't have smoke and lasers and, you know, video monitor walls behind them or anything, but right. they wanted to hear stories of danger and other things instead of the gospel. What was really funny about that is that when we were at Christian College, that was how they marketed their mission field, was by their adventure stories. It mm. wasn't by saying, look how amazingly powerful the message of the gospel is, yeah. and let's focus on getting that out. It was about, let's talk about all the glamorous stories we have to go over there. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing is that, you know, they, um, you know, the Southern Baptists wanted to uh, split off because they wanted to continue on in their sin. Yeah, very true. Rather than face up to it. Yeah. Because it meant... You know, and what a stain, even today, what a stain that that's yeah. been on the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What about convictions? I mean, he got on the boat, being a card carrying Pado Baptist, and got off the boat, a regular Baptist, <laughs> adult believer Baptist. What about our, what does that say about our convictions? Well, he was willing to pursue his even when it meant pretty much having all of his funding pulled and being out yeah. there alone with you know not not losing the backing of his church. Yeah. Who wouldn't you know didn't want a Baptist out there representing them? Yeah, I can't I can't have a Baptist out there. <laughs> You're supposed to be baptizing babies, not people, grown-ups. Yeah, but I mean, but what did he do when he started to feel those stirrings? Those he did. Kind of, he, he researched the scriptures, yeah. went to the scriptures and he studied like the Bereans. Absolutely. Yeah. So he dug into those scriptures, and that's like where he came out. Yeah. So, I mean, motive baptism is a secondary uh, level. It's not a salvation issue. It's not something we're going to go to war over, right? Again, we've, we've hit this a couple times. We have believing brothers that are paedo-baptistic, and they see it a different way. as more of a, an extension of the covenant of circumcision and blessing of the family and seeds of grace and all that stuff, and I get all that. We're not there. We're not there conviction-wise. We're obviously a, a, an adult. Baptistic believer, Baptistic church, right? But mm -hmm. secondary level concern. Dig into those things, right? Know where you are on those things. Be sure of where you are on those things and have biblical reasons for it as well. Don't be afraid to push into those things. And then, right, as, as Bridget said, then you hold to those things. You hold to your convictions, right? It would have been pretty easy for him to be like, yeah. I wonder if he had that moment like, wow, I guess that does make more sense. I could lose my funding. <laughs> Maybe I should keep this quiet. <laughs> but he went on to talk about it with his wife and with Luther Rice and a bunch of other people. What else? 
It kind of strikes me that like everyone's telling them not to go to Burma and they go anyway. Yeah. So where's that line between seeking wise counsel and and knowing if the Lord is really leading you into that danger? So we haven't gotten into the danger yet. Oh, I know, but we know it's what's crazy. to come. But yeah, I mean, it's like you're following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but you're not getting any other confirmation from anyone else. Yeah. So it's really maybe it was a, a practical decision because if it takes you 114 days to get home Mitch's <laughs> like well, I'll just go there <laughs> I get on that ship again you they, they, set out for, they set out for India first right? yes yeah. And, and India didn't want them because the Anglicans were there and they didn't want any Americans. there was something with the East India Company which I didn't understand is that what it was the Anglicans was had a presence about that, okay right? but then it sounded like they chose Burma because of the idols they said they had the the because of the, a lot of idols, yeah. so they thought huh. that that would be Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, the Buddhism isn't actually one single religion. It's, it's a whole bunch it's an amalgamation of amalgamation of yeah. beliefs. And it's different in different places. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say, Bob? You'd have to bring up the map again, but I thought Burma was landlocked, so I don't know if you could take a ship to Burma. No, it's, it's separated by a body of water. I don't know what it is, but it's there, yeah. Oh, so you can take a ship directly mm -hmm. to Burma. All right. Yep. All right, let's look at some of these things that he got into, right? So he, of course, suffered greatly and lost a lot. Usually well over 100 degree heat. <clears throat> he battled cholera. Malaria, dysentery, and more. He had fevers that would return over and over and over again to him and his family. Anne was so sick, she did actually go home, right, for two years. So imagine that. You're, you're married for 17 months. You're in the country for a few months, and your wife gets so sick that they finally say, no, we got to put her on a ship. we got to get her back to the States to try and save her life, right, which takes two years to try and save her life by the time she comes back right so he's there alone they moved uh, inland after she returned right and then after that think about getting that sick they're like okay I'm better now I want to go back mm -hmm. to where I just got so sick they moved inland and soon the British fleet arrived and foreigners were seen as spies mm -hmm. and so he was dragged out arrested and put in a horrific prison in 1824 mm -hmm. He was literally, and, and I'll read some of the conditions, but it was just absolute misery in that prison. And he was there uh, a little bit over a year, I believe it was. Five, six, he just could not get a break, right? As horrible as conditions were in the prison, Judson spared, was spared his reason. He could still think through the possibilities of how this would all work out for the advancement of the gospel. He said to a fellow prisoner, here, I have been 10 years preaching the gospel to timid listeners who wish to embrace the truth, but dare not, and beseeching the emperor to grant the liberty of conscience to his people, but without success. And now when all human means seem at an end, God opens the way by leading a Christian nation to subdue the country. Did you catch that? Mm -hmm. God opened the way by letting the British fleet come in and then arrest me and put me in this terrible prison. <laughs> it is possible my life will be spared. If so... With what ardor shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be open for others who would do the work better. It's like echoes of the Apostle Paul, right? Like, what are you going to do? Kill me? Mm -hmm. Cool. 
right? He's like, if I live, great. I'm going to get out of here more on fire than when I got in here. But if I die, okay, his will will be done. And there will be others that follow me that will do the work better than I did. That's a serious humility. Yeah. This is while he's wasting away in a rat-infested germ fest. Blech. So I stuff. love that while he's in there, he sees the hand of God outside of his own situation and recognizes. And when he, it, it's not yeah. what God can do for me in my moment. Yeah. But he is literally seeing the path that God is making for the gospel in the area and seeing it outside of himself. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. For him to have that sort of perspective in the middle of that misery. I mean, he wasted away. Absolutely wasted away. Barely ate anything, and was so sick. I just think that like ninety percent of the people in the situation would have been about God praying about themselves. Yeah, and, get me out of here. That he was right? seeing the hand of God outside of himself. Yeah, situation. Yeah, like the mission just was always yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. In that. Um, while he was in prison, his wife gave birth, um, and she too was so sick. She literally hurt. She had no milk. To nurse her baby and so one of the guards actually had um, sympathy on Adoniram and still bound with chains they let him take the baby and walk through the village at night to try and find a villager who could nurse his literally starving child right at night uh, they always had their feet bound in, in fetters they said and at night they would pass this giant bamboo uh, pull, I guess it was, through all the prisoners' chains and flip them upside down and, and uh, hang them upside down so that their head and their shoulders were the only thing touching the floor. Mm. And that's how they slept every night. What? It just blows the mind. Absolutely blows the mind. So uh, there was a turn of fate or a turn of God's will, if you, if you, if you will, right? Because we know that's what it was. Um, he was suddenly released in November 1825 because the British government knew he was there and they wanted him to work as a translator mm -hmm. to the Burmese. And then unfortunately, Anne and uh, the child died shortly thereafter uh, he was released. So once Anne and his child died and he got out of prison, that, that kind of, I mean, I don't want to say it was empty talk. It certainly wasn't from the prison, but he just spiraled after that. When he lost Anne and he lost his child, he sunk into a deep and profound depression. He lost his mooring again with faith. He embraced Catholic mysticism, got into very much uh, asceticism, uh, isolated himself. He, he moved into a hut in the middle of the jungle. He sunk lower and lower and he said, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. The idea of just now he's just lower than lower than, than low. Severe, severe dark depression. Very slowly he climbed out of that depression. And really what was kind of strange was he received word that his brother had passed away back in the States. And his brother was a believer. And that somehow they say sparked something in him that made him realize that maybe... Uh, unlike his friend who died without faith, his brother died in the faith. And that kind of rejuvenated him a little bit. And then he climbed out of the darkness slowly and then began again working on his translation of the Bible uh, into Burmese and his evangelism efforts and a bunch of other things. 
So, yeah, lots of loss, lots of suffering, lots of sickness. What kind of things do we see there? What kind of things are we thinking about as we hear that part of Mr. Judson? Well, I'm thinking about Job. You're thinking about Job, okay. Yeah, how Job descended into depression after the loss of his children and the, uh, you know, his, after yeah. his farm, the sickness that he was dealing with, yeah. you know, all of those things that um, were afflicting him yeah. and how he, you know, dove into depression and despair yeah. and um, still would not curse God. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, but just, you know, God, why, why have you abandoned me? Why are you doing this to me? You yeah. know, what have I done? Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's certainly something that those who have been through difficult times can, can come into. Yes. Yeah. You know, a time of despair. Definitely. Like that. So, wonder why, why. so can Christians be depressed? Absolutely. I think everyone we've covered to this point has had that issue. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them, right? Yeah. yeah. Probably the majority There's of them. No common denominator for suffering. Yeah. Everyone, right. That you could be an intellectual giant and you're still faced with peril. Yeah. And you doubt. Yeah. And you, you flounder. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean we should be depressed, however? Well. You know. I mean, you can't help it sometimes, you know. There's a, yeah, there's a lot in that should, right? Yeah, there's a lot in that should, yeah. right? Uh, I've, I, I'm speaking out of my ignorance, but I believe that faith, not in its simplest sense, but faith itself can be a gift that some people like Rhoda has an enormous, unwavering faith in the face of adversity and struggle and confrontation, whereas I will will sometimes at the dumbest things. And I think, honestly, that's a form mm -hmm. of a spiritual equipping that some people legitimately have where yeah. they're just so steadfast. They're so anchored that it's, it's really inspiring for those of us that, that doubt, that struggle. Mm -hmm. I, and, and similarly, I don't doubt the existence of God logically. Right. But it's the issues of, like, I don't, sometimes when I struggle, I don't feel. Yeah. You know, like, I, I'm, I'm oppressed. Yeah. Or I'm, I'm sad or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I can absolutely. I and I've never experienced oh, yeah. anything like that. Oh, especially the death of a child. You know? uh -huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, several children. Right in his case, eventually. So, but if atheism is true, it doesn't mean anything. Exactly, so which he could, he could not resolve. <laughs> yeah. He knew better than that. Yeah. <laughs> he learned that firsthand. Yeah. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Christians do struggle with depressions. Christians do yeah. struggle with darkness, fear, worry, and anxiety, all of that. We see even in Judson, uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, David in the Psalms, where he's, you know, he's fighting for it. He's bouncing up and down. He's just like, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten me? And then the next moment, he's like, where can I flee from your presence? You're always here. It's just yeah. like, well, which one? <laughs> which one are you? <laughs> right? We see a little bit of that in Judson, right? He's like, no, if I die, who cares? There's going to be people that will come after me and do it better. But if I, or, you know, if I live, I'm going to do it better myself. And now he's just like, I don't know where God is. I don't know where he's gone. One of the other things um, was a, a lyric from his friend, uh, Cowper or Cooper, however we say that, in one of his hymns. Be, he, he supposedly repeated this mantra to himself in the prison. Beware of desperate steps. The darkest day, live till tomorrow, will have passed away. Mm. And it's kind of tucked away in, in that old English speak. And so I kind of tried to 
pick it apart and find different translations. But the idea is beware of, of becoming too desperate or being be aware be aware of becoming yeah. too giving in to despair too much because he says the darkest day is going to pass away like if you have your darkest day tomorrow will come mm-hmm. it's going to pass eventually it's going to pass so he's like beware of giving in to complete despair yeah cheer up someday we'll all die yeah cheer up someday we'll all die <laughs> <laughs> It's a good quote. What about ministry in general? Is it supposed to be easy? At all times, Melanie's shaking her head. Wife of a church planner. It took them 12 years or something? Six years for one convert. Six years for one convert. Yeah. What about us? Do we think, how does this make you feel about our ministry context in northern New Jersey, Sussex County? (laughs) (laughs) I kind of feel like, well, I'm in a nice office with a cushy chair and there's no grass. Was that? We're not suffering. Yeah, not to the level of this, right? I mean, we all have have suffering and things and trials and tribulations, but we see the extent of some of this. It's just like off the charts. It's and no meds for all of that. Yet. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it's, yeah. it's probably like what Pepto Bismol would have cured like half the people or something. <laughs> something easy. <laughs> we have access to and Imodium. you know they didn't. Imodium. Imodium. Yeah. Imodium. Yeah. I think there was a lot to be said too, where that part where he said that. The converts who was trying to get to for six years were not given the freedom of conscience by their emperor. So it's almost like I hate to say use a sales analogy, but it's the sales guy who's going where you're not allowed to buy the product. Yeah. You know, so you're fighting right. for six right. years to to show them what freedom of conscience and the glory of the freedom of Christ is, but they're not allowed to buy it in their yeah. heads. So you're having to fight that constant battle with them too. Yeah. There was also a death penalty for yeah. those that converted. Yeah, think about that. But he's still there, grinding it out, right? Mm-hmm. And the reality, guys, and Melanie hit this too, it's like sometimes we're called to do hard things, and we're called to stick with it. I mean, some of those things, like just being a Christian in general, going, growing in Christ, killing sin, maturing, all that stuff, that's hard, and you know we have to stick with it. Let's face it, parenting is hard, marriage is hard, working for a living is hard, all of those things, but we stick with those things, right? Because we're worth it. But, but sometimes, too, I think extraordinary men are called to do, well, ordinary men are called to do extraordinary things, mm-hmm. right? And we were uh, talking about it before everybody got here, just what's, what's the balance of that? Like, when does the Holy Spirit override common sense, you know? Because it's like they knew what awaited them in Burma, but they were not taking no for an answer. So it's like, I just, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I throw it out to the group. What's what's the what's the balance between the Holy Spirit and obvious common sense? Like others, he was truly called to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And he followed the calling. And God opened the door. Yeah. Yep. As well. So it was the opportunity to go was there yeah. and the desire to go lined up yeah. along with, you know, the 
doing something scripturally sound. Yeah. You know, it all lined up. Yeah, it seems that if God's calling us to do something, right, it, it's going to be very obvious. Yeah. And, and that goes for all of us, right? Not just getting on a boat and going to Burma. Like, you know, putting someone on your heart who's your unsaved neighbor or being involved in a ministry in some way or a calling to serve the church in some way or calling to support another ministry in some way. Like, literally, like... Or sometimes other people will point it out to you. Sometimes other people will fan that flame. Yep. Right? I think one so. of the biggest struggles for Christians is our, <clears throat> when the Bible says, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna walk through fire and you're going to walk through high waters, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, when things are going good, we think those other things are, aren't going to happen. Mm. And I think we set ourselves up for a, a bigger, deeper fall. Um, maybe we should assume that just without happen. without proper expectations. You yeah, think? yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go through uh, walk through fire times, and we're gonna yeah. walk through deep waters. Yep. But um, I, I don't, you know, without a support system, <laughs> I don't know how he did it. Well, yeah. what, I know how he did it, but <laughs> uh, the Lord had his hand on everything. But yeah, you know. Um, just your spouse, you know, your Christian spouse holds you up so many times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, like we were saying, yeah. I went to Burma, Mel died, I, I just go home. Well, I just, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this is not cut out for me, I'll just go home and yeah, do something uh, else. <laughs> I would think the same way. You know, uh, when things are going good, you lose a spouse. Yeah. Sometimes it's high waters and walking through fire for a long, yeah. long time for. For a lot of people, but also, but, but apparently he, he he got remarried quickly. So oh boy, so, did he! So, so basically, it was it was he a was need that he needed speed dating you know, Christian companionship, you know. Yeah, and that that was a, a void Lord, that obviously the Lord had yeah, his hand in it, that as well. It, it placed it before him, and he opened doors for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. But that fast. That's just it. I mean, for any one of us, wouldn't by the fifth and a half year, you have no converts, wouldn't you also be like, all right, well, this didn't work yeah. out. Maybe God wants me somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, it seems almost like him. He's going to hit every wall and still be like, no, I'm supposed to be here. Yeah. So it is completely looking, you know, the other way when reality smacks him in the face. It's like, I'm just going to keep ignoring reality, you yeah. know. So. Yeah. Like how many times have we had those conversations with our friends or our family, just like, look, like this isn't working. Like whatever you're doing, whatever job it is, or whatever plan you have for your life, like you need a different plan. Well, don't forget too, he went there not even speaking the language yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you share the gospel with somebody when you don't even speak their language? Yeah. First, you have to learn I their language yeah. enough to even speak to them in basic rudimentary means. Yeah. And then in order to share the gospel in... Yeah, a, a heartfelt way. How many years of understanding the language sure. does that take? Sure. Yeah. Just to get off the ground. Yeah, and I, I think one thing when Bridget was saying what she was saying a moment yeah. ago, thinking that we're we're looking at this kind of in the abstract, right? We're not in that situation, but when you are up against that wall, right? right I think that's those are the times that the Lord really shows you what He wants you to do. Like when you have nothing else, yeah. right? Like, that's where it kind of crystallizes, right? We could think about it and we could say, oh, that wouldn't be me. But if we were in that situation and we felt the Lord wanted us there in that moment, would we stay or would we not? Like, um, 
of course, I was being facetious about Mel dying and going home. Maybe it would crystallize me and saying, no, I'm staying here now. What do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. Right? What were you going to say, Ro? Yeah, I was just going to seize the opportunity to pull out some G.K. Chesterton orthodoxy <laughs> where he would actually look at the whole question of um, under the sovereignty of God microscope. And he would say, all of your mistakes and all of your divine providential obediences are all sovereignly ordained by God, either to help you learn from your mistake or to follow out that great divine goal that is accomplished by your obedience. Yeah. So in sovereignty, both can work towards the better good. Yeah. I don't know if, if, I'm speculating, I don't know if he was an obstinate man, but I would like to presume that God would equip those kinds of people with that kind of tenacity. Like, that's my missionary. Because he's going to go till he drops. Like if he were at home in, in uh, where, Massachusetts, yeah. mowing the grass, he'd be just as stubborn and obstinate if yeah. he wasn't. Might as well put the guy in burn. Use personality equipped to go there. <laughs> Never giving up. That's a good yeah, point, though. It because, is. Uh, it takes a certain person to always look at the glass half full mm -hmm. as compared to half empty. Yeah. yeah. Or just be willing to see the mission to its <clears> end. <throat> I mean, that's, that's a talent in itself. Mm -hmm. How many of us would have capitulated the first sign of trouble? Burma, I don't even have a passport. What are you kidding? I'm not going over there. It's hot. <laughs> and they don't have McDonald's. There's no McDonald's? I'm out. And if, yes. it has, if it, they did have McDonald's, you definitely did not. You definitely do not want to eat it. All right, well, let's look at one other aspect, his confidence. He had a couple portions of confidence, really, that I, I picked out as well. First, he had, a, of course, they all fall under the umbrella of confidence in God. One of them was just his faith. He, he subscribed to that reform, that Calvinistic kind of faith, which really, again, banked on the supremacy of God in all things, uh, the sovereignty of God in all things. He had one quote, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. So he's facing trial after trial after trial, and he goes, this was allowed by God. Right. He we, loves me. We talked in Hebrew about in Hebrews about, yeah. about love, brotherly love, yeah. in God's <clears throat> love. He, 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 he was truly, he knew that God loved him. Yeah. He loved God with all his heart. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what drives you, and then that love comes through him for the salvation and, and, and the burning urge to uh, love others and, and yep. keep on going forward. Yep, he connected um, that to the character of God. That yeah. The trials were not an isolated incident. He knew that God didn't send them because God is not evil and does not do that, but he knew that God was using them, standing indirectly behind them, right, for his purposes. And so he trusted that God, which is crazy to think about. Infinite love and mercy. Yeah. He had the unshakable belief that God was both sovereign and good. Right? Because you can't, again, another thing the Bible holds in tension. One of the many things. If he's just sovereign, that's cruel. Right? But if he's just good, then what is it? But if he's both sovereign and good, then we have to trust him. And Piper made the connections. If you ever wanted to do any more reading on the missions movement and just a, a good theology of missions, Piper has this book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's an excellent like theology of missions, missiology, if you will. 
but he had this quote in there. He said, the modern missionary movement didn't arise in a theological vacuum. It grew out of a great Reformation tradition that put the sovereignty of God square in the center of human life. In the warfare of world missions, God bears his arm and triumphs for his own glory. So he's saying these people like Judson and, and others, they came out of the Puritans, they came out of the Reformation, and all of both of those two camps, Puritans and, and the Reformers, they held the sovereignty of God above all things, the supremacy of God in all things. And that was the thing, that that was their worldview. It drove their whole life. And so that's what propelled them into missions. It wasn't just that they felt bad for people, right? It wasn't just that maybe uh, they, they felt bad that people were uh, starving somewhere, which I'm sure they did, but that's not what drove them. What drove them is the supremacy of God in all things and his ability to be sovereign and good and be the worldview that empowered world missions in it. He had a huge confidence in the Bible. He translated the entire Bible into Burmese. Think about that. Like in a hut using what? I don't even know. The yeah. quill of a Burmese porcupine or something. Yeah, it's not even know. the same alphabet. Yeah, not even the same alphabet. No. So I had to learn that. Yeah. He was a master of Greek and Hebrew. So yeah. that was, he had that going for him. Right. Okay. Right? But yeah. then he had to. <laughs> yeah, yet again, another alphabet, another yeah. you know, thing to learn to write their, yeah. their way. So he translated the, not just the New Testament, right. the entire Bible into Burmese. But he was equipped from day one. Look what a student he was. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, you know, again, he, again, personality he, and aptitude, God-given abilities. Yeah, yep. All that God-given talent. Yep. He did supposedly, a, I think it was a 600-page dictionary of English to Burmese, again, after that. He also got a printing press. He did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a George Howe arrived in 1817 with the printing press. Wait, wasn't George Howe from Gilligan's Island? How could he be in both places? Yeah. Wow. Maybe Gilligan's Island was, that was Burma. Burma. Oh, maybe. It's a three-hour mission. I thought it was in Hollywood. <laughs> That would explain how his copies of the Burmese yes. Bible got yes. around. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I did not know that he actually, yeah. And really, again, after, after the death of his wife and baby, and after he got out of his deep depression, he devoted himself entirely to his translation work. So it was kind of one of those things, again, it was like, well, I don't have a family anymore. God's calling me to do this, and that's literally what he did 24-7 was translate the Bible. So he had a huge confidence in the Bible. He had a huge confidence in God's work of salvation. Uh, again, we said it was six years for one convert. It was nine years, and they got up to 31 converts. In 1831, they had 217 baptisms, and the next year they had uh, a little over 100. But today, the Myanmar, Myanmar, Baptist Convention has 3,700 churches with over 600,000 members in those wow. churches from this man. And this is a picture of the Myanmar, and it's called the Judson Baptist Church, one of the churches in Myanmar. So a lot of confidence and then eventually some, some results there. Any other Closing thoughts on that last part of what propelled him, his theology, his work, his results. 
we like to think about the results, right? I mean, results are good, but how much suffering did it take to get those results? Pay the price. Yeah. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship yeah. of sharing in his sufferings, yep. becoming like him in his death. By any means necessary, right? May obtain the resurrection. Yep. How much did 12 men suffer 2,000 yep. years ago? Sure. Yep, absolutely. And martyrs today. Yep. Yep. Who's building the church? Who built the church in Myanmar? God. And everybody's like, it can't be God. That's too easy. Jesus. <laughs> Sunday school answer. Sunday school answer is allowed. I thought you meant the building. Right? You built that? I don't know. Some guy named, I don't even know what Burmese name, right? Um, and Jesus promises that he will build his church, right? But look at the means that he uses to build his church, right? It's not that Jesus builds his church from far away and, you know, just voila, it appears this Adoniram Judson Baptist church drops out of the sky, right? This, this cost blood and years and sickness and imprisonment and depression and countless hours translating the Bible and all of that. So, yeah, God builds his church, right? But he does it through people, does it through means. And lastly, of course, that missions is deeply connected to the local church, right? We see that impact there, that he just didn't have conversions and then leave and, you know, see you later. He, there were churches now that are the thriving legacy of that. And that's deeply connected, of course, to the, the Baptist ecclesiology and the Baptist denomination. But they firmly believe <coughs> in the Baptist missiology that it's all about the local church. As well, and that continues today. That's our philosophy here at Highlands. That our missionaries need to be connected to a local church. They're not just renegade cowboy missionaries out there converting people and then riding off into the sunset. We want to connect them with the church, where they can mature, make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. All right. Any other closing comments, thoughts, encouraging remarks? More fudge. Yes. Um, well, one, one thing that I thought was really, I mean, odd, but it, it kind of hit me, that when he was talking, you know, very briefly in their courting uh, with his third wife, the one that was an author. Yes. Um, Fanny. And it's like he threw it, it kind of, it sounds like he threw it in her face. So, yeah, her name was Emily, but it's Fanny whoever was his pen name. Um, Can't sell books. Face, it's like, you're a great writer, but what a waste, because this is like, this is trash, because it's not Christian. <laughs> you know? And it's kind of what he said to her. He's like, because she wrote, like, dramas or, like, romance novels or whatever. And he's like, you're a good author, and I'd like you to, you know, yeah, she was supposed to write the biography of his second wife. Yeah. So he was hiring her for that, saw her talent. But he's like, what are you doing? You know, like, you need to, you need to stop this and write something worthwhile. And it was just like... Hey, I can't believe she married him after that. But I mean, it just kind of hits you like, yeah, whatever you're doing, whatever your calling is, whatever you're talented with, if you're not doing it for God, what a waste. Yeah. You know? Maybe maybe she had that little inkling in her soul, right? Maybe it right. was bothering her that it was just like, yeah, what I am doing is you get we kind of struggle with that from time to time. Like, what am I doing? Does it really contribute to something bigger? Like, maybe she felt that. Mm -hmm. And maybe he was just that Holy Spirit sledgehammer that came in there. And the way like, it was printed on the paper, it was like, whoo, holy moly, you yeah. know? <laughs> so, I mean, maybe he put it in a nicer way than I put it down, but, yeah. yeah. 
maybe it was she was finally somebody told her straight and she was like i'm gonna marry that guy <laughs> he tells me like it is yeah it was like nine days later so i was like okay well, i guess so <laughs> they moved fast back in those times nice okay well let me pray for us father we thank you again for just the time to be together and think about these things um the legacy of, of men like Adoniram Judson and just his bravery, his uh, fortitude through suffering, his steadfastness, his uh, stubbornness in a lot of ways, Lord. It's, it's, it's tough for us to wrap our minds around, um, but yet you called him clearly to do that. The legacy is still there. Uh, there are Christians that are still there that are believing because of this man and the missionaries that went after him because of this man. Um, indeed, there are still missionaries today that are, are motivated and inspired by the example they see in such men. And so may we be such people, Lord. Uh, may we think globally. May we support missions. Uh, maybe even some of us called to go to some places. We pray that you'd be clear with us in that and your Holy Spirit and lead us. We thank you for the church and pray that you will continue to build your church and continue to use men uh, like Adoniram and ordinary men and women like us to do so. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 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 All right. Another successful midweek. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.